0: Good morning. morning. Our scripture readings are from Genesis and Romans. The first passage is Genesis 1, verse 27. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And our second passage from Romans 8, 18 through 25. We know that the whole creation has been groaning, as in the pains of childbirth, right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved, but the hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Let's pray. Father, we thank you and we praise you for your word. We know that it's true. We know, Lord, that it is a gift from you to show us the way of hope and wholeness in you. I pray, Lord, that as we look at your word today and as we look at tough issues relating to gender, I pray, Lord, that your truth would reign supreme. And that your people would hear your grace, despite my own inadequacies and shortcomings. Lord, we long that you would be glorified and your people built up in every way into Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I do just want to give you a heads up this morning. I've been sharing with the church over the course of this uh, series on Made in the Image of God that this week we'll be touching on a very difficult subject in our world today. Um, the reality of of gender and struggles with gender. I also want to let you know that this will be a longer sermon than I generally like to preach, and so I'm sorry. Um, I tried to make sure that it wasn't going to be too hot in here so that you wouldn't fall asleep on me, but if you do, I won't judge you. Because of how complex matters like these are in our world today, um, I didn't want to spare words because I want you to hear grace and truth in fullness. You know, I enjoy architecture. I enjoy it as a hobbyist, not as an architect. In college, I even took an elective class on the politics of architectural design. I was a government and politics major, and I got to visit some embassies in D.C. and discussed how architecture displays a national identity. It was a fascinating class. One of my favorite architects is Frank Lloyd Wright. Some of you may be aware of him, may have visited the house he built in Pennsylvania called Falling Water. And though I'd never want to live in one of his houses, um, I think they're tremendous design, but he's a little bit... uh, Anyway, I think it would be a little bit difficult. Um, I did live a summer in Chicago with my brother, and I got to bike through some of the neighborhoods where he designed a number of homes... And while some of his buildings, like Falling Water in Pennsylvania, are simply stunning to look at, I actually grew in understanding the appreciation for his work by, by studying the principle, his principles of design, why he built those buildings the way he did, You know, knowing his architectural philosophy, which involved these long rows of windows, flat roofs, organic architecture, lots of natural light. Um, understanding his design, I was able to realize he did this so that the occupant would feel as if the line was blurred between uh, nature, what's outside, and what's inside the home. He designed buildings to complement the surrounding nature and believed people needed space and nature in their daily lives. Knowing these principles helped me not only appreciate the buildings and draw conclusions about design from those observations, but to know the intent and desire of the artist. All of this gave me a greater appreciation for the buildings themselves. The same is true of us as human beings, but to an infinitely greater degree when we think about what it means to be made human. Human science, psychology, and neurobiology, they can give us insight into how the mind works But to put such inquiry and study into the right perspective, we must know the designer. We must know the designer, the architect and owner of what it means to be human. The one who made us, who names us, and calls us very good. This is why we've gone through this series over the past several weeks on what it means to be made by God in his image. Um, We've looked at the the human experience and different aspects of the human experience through the lens of the Bible's story of creation, fall, redemption, restoration, created good, fallen in sin and corrupted by sin, redeemed by Christ and promised a future restoration in glory. Uh, we've done this, and, and uh, we've done this so that you'd understand the biblical story and be able to map it onto your own experience in life. But it's also why I've saved this message for this point in the series so late. Not because I'm afraid to talk about the subject of gender, but because it's so fraught in our culture today. I wanted you week in and week out to get this pattern creation, fall, redemption, restoration, so that when we approach this subject about which you may have very strong feelings one way or the other, you'd be able to hear how the biblical story lines up with this experience. I truly believe that understanding of a human condition through the lens of the biblical story makes so much more sense of modern gender identity struggles than the fragmented and materialistic narratives that the world offers today. Just a couple of brief caveats. You know, though I've done a ton of reading and I've walked with people and families who have struggled with these issues, I'm a pastor. I'm not a psychologist nor an expert in brain science, so while I might reference very briefly at a couple points science, know that I'm not an expert and I don't pretend to be. Second, on terminology, uh, the meanings of the words sex and gender, its contested territory in the world, which can make talking about these things very difficult, can end up talking past each other. In our society today, gender now refers to an identity associated with a subjective experience, and sex is used to refer to a physical, biological reality but biblically this distinction doesn't really exist. While there's some use in talking about gender as experience and sex as body, I will be using the terms intentionally, interchangeably in the sermon, Um, except where I, I specifically mention otherwise. Finally, know that if you are here and this subject is deeply personal to you, whether due to your own struggle or that of a loved one, you are welcome here. Even if you come to the table with a very different point of view, I'm grateful you're here. My hope is that you'll hear both grace and truth from me today. As we look at Genesis 1 and Romans 8 today, my hope for you is that you'll see that wholeness, wholeness as a human being created in God's image can only be found through embracing the goodness of God's design for gender. Wholeness is found by embracing the goodness of God's design. So let's start with creation, how we were made whole and gendered people. On the sixth day of creation in Genesis 1, God creates humanity. It's this wonderful passage that that Becky uh, read for us and you've probably heard before. He creates humanity and it says of them, he made them male and female, By this statement, Scripture marks our gendered uniqueness as an element of our design that is more central and fundamental to what it means to be human than almost any other aspect of our being. If you remember what Genesis is, it really was the national covenant for God's chosen people, Israel. But notice when he's talking about the creation of humanity. He doesn't say God made you, ethnic Israel, and then he made everybody else. He doesn't talk about ethnic difference or cultural difference or racial difference or any of these things as being fundamental to what it means to be human. Instead, he says he made you male and female. It is far more central to what it means to be human than any other element of culture or ethnicity, things which are not foundational. Moreover, the other thing we can gain from this is that men and women are equally created in God's image. There is no gradation of value, no inherent or original superiority or inferiority, equal but different. And that difference God calls very good. Very good. But you know, there's one other thing that our creation as male and female also implies about what it means to be made human. And it's made more clear in the second chapter of Genesis, which the second chapter of Genesis, if you haven't read it before, it dives deep into the story of Adam and Eve and God's unique creation of mankind. It says that we were created as incarnate beings. And this is tremendously important to understand as we engage with contemporary conversations about gender, that we were made flesh and blood. Our gendered bodies are good Very good. In chapter 2 of Genesis, which describes again specifically the creation of humanity, it says in verse 7, the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Man is made of both dust and divine breath, united as one being. There have been ideas at periods in Christian history that draw a firm line between a person's spiritual existence and their physical existence. I know this is getting into the weeds a little bit, but it's really important to understand this in Genesis. I'm compelled that we need a better biblical anthropology or understanding of what it means to be human, to be able to engage in compassionate ways in the discussions in our present world. But there have been ideas in Christian history that draw a firm line between soul and body. In the early church, there were false teachers that both the apostles John and Paul had to deal with that diminished the value of the body. Unfortunately, we even do this when we limit the mission of the church to only the care of souls, not to people in their wholeness. Churches that ignore ministering to physical needs because it's less worthy than witness actually undermine a theology of the body that is biblical they have a bad theology of the body we must do both because we're whole people consistently throughout scripture uh, the goodness of the body and the unity of soul and body as one being is affirmed again and again and I'm grateful that covenant of grace cares for physical needs and shares the goodness of the gospel of Jesus Christ and we do both together in unity But it is the unified, incarnate creation of humanity that is made male and female, not just the body. Not just the body is made male and female, all of what it means to be human. It's not that men are implanted with male souls and women are given female souls, or that the soul is somehow androgynous and the body alone is is sexed. It's that the whole person, soul and body as one, is made male or female. A biblical anthropology, a biblical understanding of the human condition doesn't actually have the ability to think of a soul being in the wrong body. Because you don't have a body, you are a body, biblically. This is so important when understanding the experience of modern gender identities. Nancy Piercy in uh, a tremendous book, Love Thy Body, she writes that this modern dualism between soul and body, which diminishes the the, the body, um, it said it's created a fractured and fragmented view of the human being in which the body is treated as separate from the authentic self. This is not a biblical idea. The strong separation between body and soul that's found in our culture and occasionally in the church. One thing it's important to know, it doesn't actually come from Scripture or from Jesus at all. It comes from Plato, from Greek and Roman philosophy, which had a very low view of the body. They taught that the soul was the real person, but the body would just be discarded at death and didn't have the same worth or value. Again, not Christian even though you can hear echoes of that in what Christians often say. Uh, Neither soul nor flesh is more or less the true self than the other. What does this mean for us? This has been kind of in the weeds, but it's important. It means for us, what it means for us is that not only are our gendered bodies good, but we are our bodies just as much as we are our souls. Scripture says, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? God has made your body to be a a resting place for him by his spiritual presence. It is good. We should not call it less. That's why our great longing as Christians is not merely for heaven. You've probably heard people say that. But our longing is for the new creation. Restored bodies in a restored world where heaven and earth are one. We'll talk about that more in a couple weeks when we close the series with what it means to be created for eternity. The final element though of our good design and good creation is male and female I want to touch on though, is the purpose of our sexual differentiation, what's called as an epithet in modern society the gender binary. It's actually made for our good and for our unity, not disunity. Later in Genesis 2, when woman is made from man, it says of her, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. And when she's made, what does the man do? He immediately bursts into grateful song like any man on his wedding day. You know, in our wedding ceremony, um, which I just remember every moment of, where's my wife? There she is. We, it was, we had a full praise and worship set during it, and um, the last song that we marched out of the room to, we actually danced and sang down the aisle, and it was a worship band playing a jazz rendition of Joyful, Joyful, We Adore Thee. You know, it felt like this scene in Genesis where Adam breaks into song when Eve is made. But what does it mean for the woman to be made a helper suitable for him? I've spoken about this in a previous sermon from our First Peter series, but I want to address it briefly again here. This phrase, helper suitable, while a perfectly good translation and it's reliable, it can be misunderstood. Um, the word helper is not diminishing or denigrating. It's not daddy's little helper, something like that. It's actually the chief word used in the Psalms to refer to God when he rescues and saves his people. It's the term used of the God who conquers our enemies. It's not a small thing, is it? Likewise, the term suitable is best understood as referring to correspondence. They fit together so that we can understand the woman to be man's good and essential counterpart, not only in marriage, but in society and in the world. We need one another as men and women. And in order to reflect the image of God, We do so when we are united in mission and purpose together. You know, I could go at length through Scripture to extol the unique virtues of men and women and the broad expressions in Scripture of manhood and womanhood, but I don't have time for that today. This is already going to be a little bit of a long sermon. Except to say that there is no place among God's people for sexism or diminishing the opposite sex in light of our innate differences some of which are biological, some of which are psychological. Only a humanity made of both men and women embracing their uniqueness and depending on one another in unity, is the, in, um, in that is the image of God displayed in its fullness. Incidentally, that's also why true marriage as defined by God can only be thought of as between a man and a woman. But if this is our design, if this is God's good design that we see in Genesis, we need to ask the question, how do we understand the struggle so many people in our world and maybe in our families, maybe we ourselves experience with gender? That's where we come to the fall and the problem of sin in the world. Our gendered selves, body and soul, experience the corruption of our sinful condition and the distortion of God's good design. You know, a dear family I knew well, I didn't know them as a pastor, but I knew them in another context, and I won't say more than that about that context. They had a daughter who, from the age of four or five, articulated a firm conviction that she was not a girl, but a boy. In the age of four or five. This happened years ago, before the sea change in the past 10 years. She wasn't learning this um, from watching movies or media. They reacted as many parents did at that time, seeking counsel, seeking spiritual advice, therapy for years. It was an incredibly painful experience of suffering for the child, but also for the family. This is a textbook case of gender dysphoria, a real, real struggle, which until very recently was considered a mental health struggle in the medical community. When I heard about that struggle from the Father, my first response by God's grace was to listen with compassion. Compassion brothers and sisters, should always be the first response we have to people's stories, even if they raise questions in our minds. But I will be honest and say that it's easier and more natural to show such compassion when issues are less politically fraught and divisive. But we must be strong enough to set aside those concerns and hear the person, not the issue. But how do we understand that child's experience and the family's true suffering. Suffering which did not go away, even though the overwhelming majority of gender dysphoria cases do resolve naturally during adolescence. I want to say to you that, brothers and sisters, our theology, it has to have a way to understand this experience without dismissing it, or our theology is useless. Do you hear me? We cannot just dismiss this story out of hand and offer no explanation. Scripture and God's word is for the messiness of life, not for living in an alternate reality where these struggles and difficulties don't exist or magically go away. I'll start by telling you what our world's answer is and then what the scriptural story says. The world's answer in the current cultural moment is to redefine the human condition An attempt to conform the body to our psychology. Uh, Mark Yarhouse and Julie Sadusky, in their excellent book um, called *Emerging Gender Identities: Understanding the Diverse Experiences of Today's Youth*, they wrote atypical gender or a different than biological experience of of gender. It was once considered a form of, and sorry for the big word, psychopathology, or in other words, it was related to mental health struggles. In other words, it was a failure of gender. Now, for the first time in our present age, atypical gender is understood not as a failure of gender, but a form of gender. It is hard to overstate the impact of this recent and drastic change in thought on what it means to be human. And we cannot understand it as anything less than a change in understanding what it means to be human in our world today. Part of the problem we face is that our world has has decided to call what's broken whole, which ironically makes our Christian compassion for the sufferer offensive because compassion assumes that there's brokenness which is why it can be so difficult for us to navigate these conversations. That's the world's answer. What is the biblical answer? Well, the Christian answer to comprehending experiences like the one I described, it begins with understanding the impact of sin on our human condition. As I've mentioned previously, when we see the account of humanity's sin in Genesis 3 and the resulting effects, Those effects aren't merely spiritual consequences of separation from God, of death. There are physical consequences as well. What happens? Work becomes hard. We sweat with toil. The world itself experiences the curse of humanity's sin. Human relationships between husband and wife, male and female, are fractured. And there's the introduction of ruling and contested ruling Um, in those relationships. Sin's effect, in other words, is radical and pervasive. That's a good way to to think about the Reformation topic of total depravity. What that means is that sin sin touches every aspect of our experience in the world. Uh, Vaughn Roberts, uh, who wrote this little yellow book, which I have a few copies of on the back table, Um, it's simply titled Transgender, he wrote on this that the Bible's insight that we are all both created and broken, is vital for understanding not just transgender questions, but every kind of human affliction, physical or psychological. We have all been profoundly impacted by the fall. It is clear that the problem of sin corrupts the whole person, not merely our soul's. We all feel its effects in so many different ways. We feel its effects in disease. We feel its effects when we go to a funeral and see death and recognize that all is not as it should be. We even feel its effects in many ways, even in the pull towards sin that tugs at our hearts and even our bodies. The longing to, to, to sin is not actually just a pull on our souls, but involves the distorting of our minds. Sinful patterns can be, encouraged in our, sorry, can be encouraged and ingrained in our brain's neural networks when we give them space. There is actually a physical component to sinful desire, which is why the formation of godly habits and spiritual disciplines is essential to spiritual growth. We can't just willpower our way to wholeness because sin is both physical and spiritual. You know, I'm convinced that part of the reason Christians struggle so much to understand the experience of gender dysphoria is that we, by and large, in the modern church, have an extremely weak theology of creation and sin. In a desire to make things simple and easy to understand, we've diminished the depths of Scripture, which has left us without an arsenal to be able to engage constructively and compassionately with the world around us. The Westminster Confession of Faith, in its chapter on sin, it helpfully describes sin not only in terms of our actions, but also our condition. It uses the terms actual transgressions, referring to the sins I commit with my will and original corruption, which is the brokenness but also sinful orientation of my body and soul's faculties. We experience both things as fallen human beings. What that means is none of us should be surprised that some people's experience of original corruption involves a disconnect or dysphoria between how they think of themselves and their bodies. We shouldn't be surprised if we understand sin and its impacts biblically. And it's a disconnect that may or may not be able to be resolved in this life, even like the other struggles we face. It shouldn't be surprising. In fact, I think the fear that many Christians experience in talking about these issues is because we lack this biblical understanding. So we turn away and explain away. We either turn away from from Scripture and explain it away as old and and irrelevant and it, it doesn't get our modern society, or we turn away and explain away people turning away from sufferers and sinners and explain them away as as just people making bad choices for their lives. We don't have to do either, brother and sister. In fact, we must not do either. Transgender people, to borrow a modern category, which I wouldn't affirm, but but, um, it's, it's helpful, they are human beings with inalienable worth, Period. And God's word is absolutely true. If we lose the truth of scripture, we lose the ground for human worth and value. And if we deny or lose the worth of trans lives, we have denied the truth of God's word that all people are created in his image and are valuable and worthwhile. The church as a whole and we as Christians individually need to get over ourselves and recognize that we all have a responsibility to put in the work to know, understand, and love our suffering neighbors. Now to this point, I've talked about the typical experience of a case of gender dysphoria and a Christian perspective on it. And I don't... I know we're getting into the weeds quite a bit here, but that is not the only challenge that we face today in the world. And it's, I'd be remiss if I didn't talk about this. In the past decade, there has been a 4,000% to 5,000% increase in the reported cases of gender dysphoria in the U.S. Ten years, 4,000 to 5,000%. Not only that, but the presentation of these cases is changing, the age dropping lower with a particular expansion among teen girls. In this increase, there is actually an increasing social pressure on teens to actively question gender identity and explore alternatives so that the natural experience of, of feeling uncomfortable in your bodies, which happens during adolescence it is turned into a questioning of one's identity. Now this doesn't allow us to explain away all cases of dysphoria, which is a real struggle, but it's something that we should be aware of as Christians and as parents and as loved ones of those who suffer. And you know there are all sorts of explanations for these changes in the world. Um, there's scientific endeavor to show how this has just been a suppressing of real gender diversity. Um, but. There's also a pushback against any science that questions the transgender experience. You know, science properly done can help us understand these issues better, but unfortunately, good scientific inquiry, which we could normally rely on, it can be stymied by bias when a matter is is particularly politically charged. And that's absolutely the case here. In Europe, where it is less contentious, ironically, research is moving governing authorities to limit gender-affirming care for minors, because its long-term effects are being recognized as harmful in many cases. You know, as I think about our denomination, it is extremely rare for the PCA, the Presbyterian Church in America, to make any kind of political statement. It's one reason I love, I love the PCA. Um, But we did on this one. I supported our denomination last year in petitioning U.S. state and federal authorities to end the practice of medical gender intervention on children. The push for these treatments often places parents in the position of having to choose between the life of their child and their child's gender. It is tragic, and families suffer so deeply with these difficult decisions. We must have compassion and patience with families that struggle with these things. But we also must not stay silent. But apart from the big picture, how is the church to respond to people in our lives and communities in light of this ballooning struggle? That's what I, as your pastor, care most about. How you interact with your family's loved ones and your neighbors who struggle. That's where I come to the final step in our journey through the biblical story. Redemption in Christ. You see, we actually as Christians with God's word have an overarching story that does a better job of explaining the human condition than anything this world offers. The world increasingly bases human identity on subjective experiences and feelings. But we do it on the basis of God's design. We say that humanity is created by a good creator, named and defined by him, and the world says that your inner self is what's true. Above all else, to your own self, be true. These are different ways of thinking about the human condition and what it means to be human. We are not our own brothers and sisters. We are his possession, made by him for a purpose. In our story, it doesn't end with the corruption of sin, but with a wonderful Savior, Christ Jesus, who comes and inhabits our fallen, broken humanity, bears the curse of death, and rises to give new life, glorified and made whole. In Romans 8, Paul reflects on our Christian hope in Christ when he says, I consider that our present sufferings aren't even worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Here when Paul is speaking of sufferings, he is decidedly not only speaking of persecution for the faith, but the full scope of the impact of sin on us and this world. He says, whatever your suffering, whatever difficulty you are facing, whatever your affliction in this life, your experience of the corrupting power of sin, Jesus' resurrection secures for you glory that will blow it out of the water. It's worth it to trust in him and not in this world's false narratives. Then he goes on to describe that just as all creation was broken by sin, all creation longs for the day when God's people, you and I, are made whole. For in that day, it will be made whole as well. Listen to this. I love verses 22 and 23. It talks about how the whole creation is groaning as in the pains of childbirth for us to be revealed. And then it says in verse 23, not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of God's spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. First of all, what this says is that we're all still waiting and in our waiting, we're all groaning. If you have aches and pains in your body, you can relate to that groaning. It might be very literal for you. Um, We're all waiting. We're all groaning. Our suffering and struggles don't go away in this life, including the reality of gender dysphoria in this world. But what are we waiting for? Is it the redemption of our souls? No! It's the redemption of our bodies! Isn't that amazing? In his death, Jesus takes on himself all of our brokenness and the guilt of sin and in his resurrection, he secures our full and complete restoration. Bodies and souls together made whole and complete like his. Without gender confusion, without dissatisfaction. Until then, we live in the groaning times, awaiting wholeness and living in light of its promise. That's why I can love and relationally accept people who struggle with transgender identities. I will patiently walk the road of suffering along those who struggle, alongside those who struggle and long for wholeness in Christ, even as Christ walks with me as a suffering sinner. But I can't affirm as good the suffering itself. I can't affirm the embrace trans identities I don't lead with that in relationships but when asked I don't lie because in light of scripture which rules over me I cannot call something that is part of the corruption of our God made design good and I cannot in love confuse brokenness with wholeness that would be the opposite of love If you take a similar posture like mine, it is entirely possible in this world that you might be called transphobic, even though it's not true. But for me, I do not believe it is loving to affirm something that is harmful and will not ultimately bring wholeness. For the church to be a place of hope and wholeness in Christ, we need to define wholeness the way God does, not subjectively. We need to define it by living into and in light of the new creation that God has prepared, recognizing that we still groan with longing in the suffering of this world. Until that day when we see him face to face, we must be a community that embraces the sufferer without fear and without shame. That is particularly true for people and families who struggle with a disordered experience of gender and long to follow Christ. Very briefly... At the end here, I want to offer you a few points of application that are just the beginning of what I believe this looks like for us in our personal lives and in our church family. So points of application. First, we need to understand the times that we might know what the church should do. This borrows a description from 2 Chronicles of the sons of Issachar who knew, who were wise, understood the times, and knew what God's people needed to do in a time of difficulty. The church needs people like that today. I'm often reminded of a, of a statement a pastor made to me that in preparing a sermon, I need to be as good a student of my congregation as I am of God's word. The same is true of every Christian in engaging the world around us. If you have people in your life in the LGBTQ plus community, you need to learn. You need to take the effort to inform yourself. I have a few copies of very short books Um, one of which is this little tiny book on transgender. It it approaches the subject from the framework of of creation, fall, redemption, restoration, as I have in this sermon. Um, And there are a couple others back there. Um, One mini book on how to explain and talk with your kids about LGBT identities. Take one of these books if you're willing to read it, but if it's just going to gather dust on your shelf, don't take it. I really want this for people who need to learn and want to learn. If you have a very close relationship with str- someone struggling with gender identity and you want to understand this experience, um, I recommend reading Mark Yarhouse and Julie Sadusky's book *Emerging Gender Identities*. I can't endorse all of the recommendations in the book, but it's the best that explains the experience from the framework of an orthodox Christian worldview. Second application point: embrace the truth unabashedly, brothers and sisters. We need to know God's word and not take an armchair approach to the Christian life and theology. Seek out discipleship. In here, in God's word, is the truth of the human condition, but also the only hope your neighbors have for their wholeness. Science and psychology can be aids in understanding, but only God can tell us what we are and what we're for. If you're not discipled by God's word, you are already being discipled by the world and its ideologies. This is also true of our kids and why Christian parents cannot in this age take a laissez-faire attitude toward our children's worldview and influences. Modern gender ideologies are the streams that they swim in every day. Don't be afraid of it, but invest yourself in having good conversations and in their Christian growth. Only those who sit at the feet of their Savior regularly can respond not with truth and grace in balance, but truth and grace in fullness. Third, be careful to define manhood and womanhood biblically, not culturally. We have this awful tendency in the church to sanctify our cultural preferences for manhood and womanhood. But biblically, the scope of what masculinity and femininity looks like is incredibly broad and diverse. Yes, men are to be protectors and providers, to, to lead spiritually in the home. Um, that, is, that is very true. Um, but also we need to recognize that one of the most celebrated women in Scripture, Jael, saved Israel by driving a tent spike through the head of their most vicious oppressor, Sisera. (laughs) She was a protector and defender, too, and celebrated. Also, Deborah, in the book of Judges, was the only truly moral and faithful judge in the entire book. Yes, in Scripture, women are encouraged and called nurturers, And I am so grateful for the nurturing of a loving mother. But you know there are examples and pictures of nurturing men too. I don't care who wears blue or pink in the church. Um, Some men enjoy music and flowers and are no less masculine than those who spend their time at the gym. Some women love rock climbing and mountain biking and are no less feminine than those who love tea parties. Period. We need to get over our narrow categories our cultural categories of what gender expression looks like or we risk, run the risk of implying to those who might struggle, implying to them that, well, you don't fit our cultural categories, so you, you might be the other gender. We don't want to imply that by being overly narrow and accidentally tell somebody that they might be living in the wrong body. Get over your preferences and know what's cultural. Just two more briefly. Uh, The fourth one is to be more curious than certain about people's stories. This is so important for us, church. Listen well and listen long before speaking. Uh, A couple weeks ago at the CCEF Christian Counseling and Education Foundation Conference, I was particularly struck by Ed Welch uh, saying, respond to people in a way that invites more words. Respond to people in a way that invites more words. We have this bad tendency of when we feel strongly about something, we just drop a truth bomb on them. Dropping truth bombs on people when you haven't walked in their shoes and listened to their journeys is about self-justification, not compassion. Mark Yarhouse tells a story of a teen girl who came into his counseling office with her parents. She had begun identifying as non-binary. He asked her a bit about her story, and she started to open up. But before she could get very far in, the mother cut her off, jumped in, and contradicted her experience by citing from our text today in Genesis 1. What happened? The daughter shut down. And that brief moment of hope and self-disclosure she was beginning to engage in was over, and they couldn't get anywhere in therapy. Listen well. Discipleship is a long road, and I want you to hear this. Shortcuts to solving other people's struggles generally just leave them bruised and battered in the dust, with us saying and moving on, saying, Well, I tried. Let that not be us. We need to be willing to walk the long road. Finally, seek help in community. All Christians are saints, sufferers, and sinners. If you or someone you love suffers with gender identity, there is no shame in the reality of that struggle here, no matter what you've seen or experienced elsewhere. We long to share the hope of the gospel with you and be along for the long road of healing, suffering, and growth with you. Pastorally, I have resources to share with individuals or families that struggle with these issues, and I also know of excellent counseling resources I'd be happy to refer you to in order to augment your arsenal if the care we can provide is not enough. Brothers and sisters, as we face cultural change and struggles in our family members and loved ones that we could not have imagined even 20 years ago, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. God's word hasn't come up short. His gospel hasn't stopped working. And his kingdom hasn't put on the brakes. His spirit is still with us. And God's good design for humanity as male and female is still the way people find hope and wholeness. Don't lose heart. And in God's strength, don't stop loving your neighbor as Christ has loved you. Amen. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would give us wisdom by your word. That you would fill us with your spirit that we might know the truth and love our neighbor even as you have loved us. Help us, Lord, to be a light and a witness, never compromising either truth or grace. That all might see us and know that the source of hope and wholeness is you alone. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.